0: and welcome to another Scots Hay podcast. And today I'm joined by Rachel McCormack, um, who's a writer, a broadcaster, and food uh, expert, and who has just had a book published, Chasing the Dram. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Um, so let's talk about... The fabulous book, Chasing the Dram. How would you explain it to people? Because it's a little bit different from a perhaps a normal whiskey book, if there is such a thing.
1: Well, I think a normal whiskey book nowadays is very much about whisky and about process and it's very much an encyclopedic book where you really learn about whiskey. My interest in whiskey was almost more cultural yeah. and so I didn't want to write a book just about whiskey and I didn't want to write a book just about cooking with whiskey. I kind of wanted to write about what whiskey meant to Scotland but not in a way that was really academic because I'm not an academic writer so I suppose it's best described as like a whiskey travelogue with recipes, if you are a whiskey expert you won't really learn anything from the book but you can see what what we think of you, because yeah. there's an entire wee whiskey geek world where they all know each other, and they all know everything about whiskey, and they are they think that they're normal, and I'm not exactly convinced that they are, in the way that people who are really, really, really into something yeah. aren't really that normal
0: yes and that's the thing, I got. um first of all, there's this myth, there's a lot of myths and you bust a lot of them, which I really like, um, that whiskey, a bit like wine, but more so is only for those that know, and if you don't, then, you know, it's basically for getting drunk on or something like that.
1: Well, well I think the thing with whiskey is that, it, I think it's like anything, it's like wine. If you like a whiskey that six months after you start learning about whiskey so in in January you like whiskey eh, and by June you think I don't like that whiskey anymore I know a lot more I don't think that's any good that's fine but you would enjoy it in January and in January all you've got is January you're not in June yes so I I, kind of I didn't want to say this is a better whiskey than another because I don't think that's true I think there's an educated palate that can tell between a different whiskey You know, if you've got, if you just like peated whiskey, then really drinking a lot of sherry cask whiskey isn't a waste of your time. But if you know an awful lot more, you can tell between one peated whiskey and another. But if you don't, you've only got. You've only got the night. That night you're drinking whiskey, yeah, and sure. you could learn more and change your mind. But that's the good thing about whiskey: yeah. is you don't have to say this is the one I like, and ten years later this is the one I have to drink. There's a lot of whiskey, so you can yeah. do what you want. And you
0: know, your palate's change, and people, everything, you know, tastes change in general, anyway.
1: Well, I mean, it changes. I mean, to me, I notice it changes. To me, like in different days. Like sometimes I'm drinking a 40% whiskey, and I don't want any water in it. other days I'm like, oh, this is like just yeah, rasping that, my yeah. throat, and and I don't know if it's because it's what I've eaten, or if it's because of what the temperature of the weather. Like, or, or I, d- I really genuinely don't know what the difference is. I'm sure, like, a scientist would be able to tell me, but it's just you know, you've kind of got what you've got that day.
0: So the first taste of whiskey that you talk about in the book was when your dad used to give you Macallan and hot toddies, rather special hot toddies, I have to say. I don't think my dad had very much whiskey in the house, apart yeah. from
1: Macallan, because that was the one that he liked. And he had a really bad cold, and I do remember him one day when I had I did this cold for about a week and I couldn't shift it, he was like, I'm going to ruin this whiskey, but I need to give you this hot toddy. And this idea of ruining whiskey is... A, is is a really interesting concept that you could ruin a whiskey by adding stuff to it. Yeah. It's a real cultural concept that in the Mediterranean you'd find with food in a way that people get really offended when you do their food wrong. Yeah,
0: when well, you do a twist to it or Oh,
1: they do like not that. like that. I mean, I don't know if you'll remember, probably nobody else in Britain does, especially not in Scotland, but Jamie Oliver did a recipe for a paella that he put in a normal pot and it I had chorizo in it, yeah. and it and the Spanish just went crazy. I mean, it was like a national scandal Yeah. that Jamie Oliver had done this to their paella in a way that I can't imagine us being in any way insulted if somebody did something with black pudding. Yeah sure absolutely we just would think well that wasn't very nice but we wouldn't have a have a scandal about it in a way that people whiskey people would go no it's a scandal people yeah. are that I'm drinking it wrong in a way that Spanish people I think in the whole of the Mediterranean would be like you're eating my food wrong you know I come from this village in Italy this is how we do this dish with asparagus and if you try and do it and you add this and that ingredient you're not doing our dish you're doing yeah. something else don't tell people you're doing our dish
0: yeah
1: and we don't do that about food at all but we definitely do it about whiskey yeah
0: so that idea of, um, well, I'm going to have a piece of ice in this whiskey and someone would just go, well, I'm not giving you it then because you're just going to ruin it for yourself. Which is
1: really, I think, I find it really an interesting way of looking that, that we have a drink culture as opposed to a food culture, that if you if you look at the idea of conviviality and sharing, which I kind of put quite a bit in the book yes. about that kind of thing of, if you go to someone's Spanish house, they'll, they'll pour you a glass of wine and they'll open the fridge. And they'll give you what they've got. Our idea of conviviality really is drink, and it really is originated in whiskey, that you give someone a whiskey, it's a different thing from even nowadays, from even giving them a glass of wine or a gin and tonic or some food.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I was with somebody recently in the pot still, and I had seen a whiskey that I wanted to have, um, Kilcohan whiskey. Right. And... It's, a, it's one of the weed distilleries on Isla, quite new ones. And she's from Isla, and her dad's from near Ardbeg distillery, so she always drinks hard bag. And so she was looking at this Kilcoman whiskey and she said, well, I've never had that before. That's the farm beside Zo and so's house and up that wee road. I heard they were doing a distillery. And I said, Well, I'll get this one, and why don't you get another one? And she went, No, 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 let's get the same one. Let's share the same one. And I thought, You'd never say that about gin. You'd never say that about wine. If we were in a restaurant, you'd never say, "Let's get the same dish and partake of the same yes, things."
0: Yeah.
1: It was almost in her DNA, and I don't even think she knew what she was doing. It was like, "Let's partake of the same of like two so whiskies, the same whis- so together. we're sharing this together."
0: Uh uh-huh. I think it's interesting. Do you also think it maybe goes back to that time because we didn't have a lot of whiskey in the house um, when I was a kid, and certainly. When I talked to my mum about having a bottle of whiskey in the house, it was like, well, we had one for the year because it was so expensive and I it, mean, it was seen as a special it thing. Was, it
1: was two weeks' wages. Yeah, for so a they had this whiskey. idea
0: that you would give someone a whiskey. It was like, well, this is the, break out the good stuff, you know. The vicar's coming around, let's have something yeah. like that.
1: I think there is. I think there is that, but I wonder if that is earlier because I think you know if you look at if you, if you look at if you look, I mean, the only other place that I know really is 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 Spain, mostly Catalonia, and if you look a lot of that conviviality idea with food, it does definitely come from a peasant tradition, right. and it, and I, made me wonder if our peasant tradition is much more to do with giving a whiskey because whiskey was what you did with your leftover barley, mm-hmm. and yeah. it it might be even that old as opposed to. From the from even from the post war or even like the post sort of or the industrial revolution it might be really really old traditions that are just kind of put in people's dna that to the point where i mean everybody in scotland's got a whiskey story anybody yes. listening that says i don't have a whiskey story go well where was your school oh my school was right opposite such and such an office and my dad used to do or my uncle or my mum and they, all everybody has a whiskey story in scotland even when they think they don't
0: um, I remember the first time i had back to Macallan. I think it was the first malt that I ever tasted. And I'd just started working in a restaurant um, uh, as a 17-year-old pot washer. And afterwards, I said, well, try this. And I remember trying it and going, oh, that's better than Glen's or whatever i have tried previously. Like, but then they gave me a Lathroig to taste. Mm-hmm. It was almost like testing you, kid, or something like that. And I thought, oh, that's disgusting. I'm never going to drink that again. And, you know, go... Forward for almost 30 years now, and that's the, the you know the p as you say the pt strength. That is how a palate has changed over the years and kind of uh, and appreciated different tastes. Because if I you'd gone back to me, I thought I can't drink this stuff. It's like you know, tops or whatever that people say about the really pt whiskies. But yet, uh, over the years, it really has
1: changed quite a lot. But I think you know people's palates do change, and you know, people's education about about food does change. But what my experience of macallan was because it was the only one that my dad really had in the house when I was about 17 and I was about 17 and a half and you know you go into like a pub when you're 17 and a half and nobody knows you and you're pretending yeah. you're 18 and you think you're getting a drink and nobody's IDing you it's brilliant and I thought oh I'll have a whiskey because like I like whiskey in the house because that's the problem when you're like underage in a pub you don't you don't even know what to ask for and I never I never liked beer yeah, You know, so yeah, yeah. people would normally ask for beer but I never liked that so I'm going well what do I have I'll have a whiskey so I had a whiskey I came home and the next day I said to my dad you know a whisky in the pub last night dad and it it, it it was really not very nice. It wasn't like the whiskey that you give me. And my dad just looked at me and said, oh God what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> well
0: it didn't put you
1: off. No, but it kinda made me realise there were whiskies and then there were whiskies. Yeah. And I still have that thing now. I mean I spent about two years researching on this book and and I still have that thing even now I've got almost that kind of cellular memory inverted commas that when you give me a Macallan I'm like yeah that is to me what original whisky should be everything else I absolutely love a load big range of whiskies and I wouldn't always choose a Macallan anymore but still there's still a part of me going yeah that's what whisky tastes like because that was the first one I had
0: so, going go back to the book, she mm-hmm. said it's a travelogue, but it's also a recipe book as well, mm-hmm. which really interested me. It's quite unusual recipes. You've got um, venison biryani, um, the one where you're injecting into the lamb.
1: Do you know what? I put that one in for a laugh because I didn't <laughs> think anybody would do it. And it's, it's an Alice B. Tolkis recipe. She a right. Alice B. Tolkis wrote a book, a, wrote a cookbook, And one of the things I had in it, I think, was hash fudge. So it's never been out of print because everybody wants Alice (laughs) Peter's hash fudge recipe. But this lamb um, was a recipe that she says that she bribed a provincial French surgeon's cook to get. And you get this lamb and you inject it with half orange and half brandy for about eight days while you've got it in a load of red wine marinating. And then I found it in... Oh, what was his What's his name? He wrote the plagiarist cookbook. He used to be a big reviewer. He wrote, writes a lot about architecture. Mm. Now the name I cannot remember. and It's going to annoy me. Uh, Jonathan Meads. Oh yes, yes. Jonathan yes. Meads book written, wrote this cookbook called the Plagiarist in the Kitchen. Right. And he said he got the recipe off her He changed it slightly And I was looking at it thinking that is mad I mean who is going to like inject half whiskey Half orange juice And I thought you know what I will I am <laughs> going to go and try this and see what it's like yeah. And it was actually really nice I can't imagine anybody actually doing it but I just thought, there are, there are recipes I think you put in where you think everybody can do this recipe. Yeah. And there are other recipes you put in going, that's just quite mad. But what... Because, again, what I thought was interesting was there is absolutely no tradition in Scotland about, of cooking with whisky.
0: Absolutely. There's nothing. Yeah. Can um, I was trying to think about this, and I thought, when I used to cook professionally, I thought, what did I make with whisky? Whisky sauce. Cranachin. Um, and... Um, I think I did a kind of whiskey souffle or something, you know, chocolate. Sometimes you add it to a chocolate pot or something like that, chocolate mousse, and that's about it.
1: But those are all new. They're all, like, as in terms of they're not, yeah. well, they're like from the 1970s. Because yeah, if you sure. look at, like, um, m- uh, what's her name, Marion McNeil has that book The Scots Kitchen that she published yeah. in the 30s about recipes that were going to be lost and she published a cranikin recipe and it has flavouring in it, it doesn't have whisky ah. it has no whisky the only whisky that she had put in was something like something that you had after the harvest when you got oats and you had a mixture of ale and whisky and right. you put that in the oats and you went off and finished the harvest and came back and then you had to eat this stuff which just looked vile so I never did it but that was the only thing and if you look at if you look at Norman cooking, there's a load of Calvados. I mean I have this friend whose mother was from Normandy and she's a chef in Lancashire, and she always, I, you ever get a recipe from from Sodi so and it's like, put a little flut, put a flutter of, of Calvados in this and I'm like, why do you put Calvados in everything? Yeah. And she said, well, my mum's from Normandy, of course I do that. And when you look at old 19th century recipes from Spain and from the south of France they interchange brandy and wine as you, you, put, you put cookie. brandy, you put wine, and we we never ever did any of that, and
0: again, do you think that was because this reverential nature of how people looked at whiskey? They thought, I was a bit like putting it in your heart toddy, it's a waste to put it into food." I
1: think we think it's a waste because we don't do it. I think it's the other way round.
0: Right.
1: I think we didn't do it because of the tax went on it so quickly that that any kind of any kind of industry with whiskey any kind of making whiskey was illegal and could make you money could actually make you cash why were you going to pour something in yeah, to yeah. food that you were making when you could actually make some precious coins out of it and also you were doing something that was illegal it wasn't a, a, home, a home industry, because if you, if you look at a lot of the recipes with brandy or with Calvados they're very much 19th century farm recipes yeah. so people were just distilling Calvados and brandy on a small scale the same way they were maybe making wine at the local co- cooperative, because there wasn't massive tax, there, wasn't, there was not There hardly any tax sometimes there, wasn't, there was yeah. no tax at all on these things, in a way that wasn't happening in Scotland very very quickly, so you were making something that was then became, I think, culturally very precious. Because you'd yeah. either be drink You wouldn't just be pouring it in food. Yes. Yeah, you, you'd have to keep it specifically for drinking, or you'd be making money out of it. Yeah.
0: So, a lot of these recipes, um, their origins aren't in Scotland, you know? No, I
1: mean, I would say none of them are, just because there aren't any. Yeah. So, what I was thinking, what I really wanted to do was... You, there are a few cookbooks about cooking with whiskey, but they're mostly done by chefs and they're mostly quite complex, or they're very specific about the kind of whiskey they want you to put in. Right. And they're great, but if you're going to have a tradition, if you're going to create a tradition, because I mean, you know, essentially all traditions are invented. I mean, you'd, my experience has Spain was you'd go to some big village fiesta that you looked like had been going for a thousand years, and it turned out it started in nineteen sixty four. or like 1981 but no one cared it it was becoming a tradition to go to that town or that village for that event and if you look at us with tartan and bagpipes I mean that's a total invention from Victorian times so I thought well we just invent a tradition all traditions are invented let's invent one so let's invent a tradition of cooking with whiskey. so with that I thought I didn't put in a lot of recipes but I thought I needed to put in enough that some might be a bit more demanding I mean I've got a recipe that I never even tested for um, for macarons because Helen Vass gave me that yeah. and she's like Scotland's best pastry chef and her recipe was really exact and I mean I've made macarons once and I'm never doing that again as long say, as I say, live yeah, you
0: don't they, have to make a macaron don't they are <laughs> a
1: total faff, but some people somebody somewhere might want to make yes. one And if not, they want to look at the recipe and go, I'm really grateful for that recipe, Rachel, because I am never making them, but I am going to buy them and I'm going to appreciate the effort and exactitude that has gone into making these. I
0: still think if you want to give someone a really special dinner, you know, injecting lamb leg with whiskey eight days, that's the way to do it. That's the way to impress someone. It's
1: actually not, I mean, it's not that hard to do. It's just, you you can't just buy it on a Thursday for the dinner Saturday. But it was, I mean, it tasted amazing. It was really a different taste and it it wasn't difficult. But what i always wanted to do is kind of make things that you could do at home that you then the idea was then you could look at you look at your own food and go well i should put some whiskey in that and see what that's like and i like it because the one i noticed the most that you get the most out of is actually just mushrooms and butter and whiskey if you use mushrooms butter whiskey if you want to use a bay leaf use a bay leaf or don't salt and nothing else and use different whiskeys people will be convinced that you have put in a load of secret herbs and spices that you're just not telling them about. Because the residuals you'll get from something like a Valveni and the residuals you'll get from a Lafroigue or a Lagavulin are so different that people will be utterly convinced that you've put in a completely different thing.
0: Um, Going back to this idea that uh, a lot of the mythology of whiskey or the the ownership of whiskey is seen maybe by small groups of enthusiasts who think that they are the same ones and that everyone else perhaps just doesn't know as much as them. But the industry itself, as you point out, is massive. And I don't think I even... Really, I mean, I knew it was a huge industry, worldwide industry, but it's... It, I mean, we always concentrate on oil, you know, being the possible possible saviour of Scotland, but whiskeys up right up there, isn't it's
1: it? It's the third biggest industry in Scotland.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it is a massive industry. That was the thing, you forget how much money the whisky industry makes. I mean, if you go to Ireland, you look at those distilleries, the amount of money that those distilleries are making for the Exchequer are absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm and that was the thing you do again you do forget you just take it for granted but you know in, everybody knows you go abroad anywhere strange and the first thing everybody says is well do you have whiskey you're from Scotland that is the only thing they know and they all want Johnny Walker or Chivas.
0: Yeah.
1: and yeah. you forget like you know I mean 90% of the sales of Scotch whiskey around the world are um, blended it's blended whiskey mm-hmm. it's not malt whiskey malt yeah. whiskey is, is increasing massively in the states and in lots of places but also you forget these how much whiskey, scotch whiskey in a lot of countries is a big symbol of luxury you say some symbol you've arrived mm-hmm. so if, you, if you're if Chivas or your are Diageo and you're looking at your Johnny Walker brands or your Chivas Regal, <coughs> Regal brands, before you even look at your marketing in a country, what you're looking at is what their GDP is doing, because if their GDP goes up, your sales go up because yeah. you might not be able to afford a Mercedes you might not be able to afford a Rolex, but you can afford a proper bottle of Johnny Walker Red or Chivas Regal and that is you arrived, you can can per, you can kind of, per, what's the word? You can sort of like show that off amongst your friends yeah.
0: at a party that you have a proper bottle of Johnny Walker or Chivas Regal. Oh, well, you've got a story in the book about an Indian wedding, I think. Well, um, they're, they're the symbol of you know this is a wealthy wedding is a bottle of whiskey on the table. the table. Yeah. The, the table and it's Johnny
1: Walker, I think that they are. Well, I mean, I Indian friends of mine always say Johnny Walker is the unofficial national drink of India. <laughs>
0: but that makes the point brilliantly, and also. We have kind of concentrated so much recently on the mythology of malt whiskey, and they're being made in small distilleries, not so small distilleries, a lot of them, but there's a kind of um, romance about that. But the bulk of the whiskey is still mass produced uh, in big warehouses, and uh, you go to at one point, kind of, mm-hmm. which was the It's not there? No,
1: it's not there anymore. But I mean, you know, a lot of these big names started off as grocers, and I didn't really appreciate how, how much whiskey that we know in Scotland is actually a 19th century invention, like bagpipes and tartan, and in terms of the thing that really took off the whiskey industry was blended whiskey which was grocers started off doing mm-hmm. that, so a lot of them are learning how to blend tea and distilleries didn't sell bottles distilleries would make the whiskey and then wouldn't really bother, someone would have to come up and get it in their own barrel right. so this whole idea of like whiskey being finished in certain barrels or then being taken off a still and put into a barrel, if you were running a grocer's in Kilmarnock like John Walker was, he would send up his barrels to the distillery Bring them down and then mix them in, into his own whiskey in a way that his grocers liked. And the, sorry, and his customers that his customers, his grocer shop, like that kind of whiskey. I mean, that is how a lot of things started. I mean sherry, cream sherry is the same thing. Because right. sherry different types of sherry were arriving in Barrels in Bristol and they were making it into what they called milk sherry. Right. Because it was just this mixture and sometimes the colour of it could be almost like milk mm-hmm. until Harveys, the, com- the the grocer's Harveys were making this the rumour, the story, it's probably not true, but I mean, it's a good lie, so yeah. it doesn't really matter. They were saying, oh, well, you know, this is your, your sherry is surely the cream of all the sherries in Bristol, so this was how sherry became Bristol Cream Sherry. Ah, uh, okay. And, and And again, I think that comes from tea. They started, people were learning how to blend tea. So John Walker's son, Alexander, had learned how to blend tea in Glasgow and went back to Kilmarnock and then started making a wholesale business and then it just it just took off like a lot of them did I mean that was the thing about the travelogue was I went to Kilmarnock on a wet Sunday in January so that no one else ever has to go because again <laughs> you kind of have this whole mystery of let's go round fantastic places in the sun and sit outside distilleries by the water with mountains
0: Yeah. sun's off your glass and all that kind of
1: stuff oh, and you know you, and there's a rainbow because the <laughs> rain's just stopped and you're having like the mountain dew and it's all all this nonsense and a lot of whiskey was just in was, was made by big industry. Yeah. I mean I mean in terms of, of in terms of being put into barrels, in terms of then being bottled. I mean, you know and even when you look at oh you know, whiskey in the nineteenth century, I mean these guys were doing really heavy jobs. I mean, if you're standing there turning barley every single day, that was a hard labouring job.
0: Yeah.
1: It wasn't it wasn't romantic, it was hard going and Coopers, I mean, Coopers had you know their health ruined really, really quickly because they were they were making up barrels, but they were being paid per barrel, and there was n- absolutely no attention being paid to health and safety. So you know these guys were ruining their health
0: really quickly with all the industrial injuries. So it was another kind of heavy industry that was um, really detrimental to the health of the people. That S- I
1: mean, so were the coppersmiths. I mean, yeah. I, one of the things I did, and uh, I went with my dad. I went to the Coppersmiths, uh, Abercrombies at. Um, Aloa, and the guy to taking his round is Charlie King. He runs it, and he kept going on and on and on about health and safety. And one of the things they did that I didn't put in the books, so I he told me about this later. They had like a an anniversary. I can't remember what it was like two hundred and fifty years or something like that. It was a special anniversary. I said the thing that really made a lot of the guys that work with him really look was when these retired guys who'd worked there their whole lives came back and he made the state of their health. And he's would say, to, and as soon as they left, he said, you know, to his workers. This is why I'm so paranoid about your health and safety. I don't want you to be like that when yeah. you're 65. I do not want you to be hobbling along and falling apart because you've you've been working in these copper st- stills your entire lives. This is why I worry about these things.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's a, it is a travelogue, and in that travelogue, it takes you to places that you perhaps don't expect to be um, a related to whiskey in any way, air been one of them.
1: Yeah. You know, we went to, we to Alloa and I went to Wishaw, which are not... Wishaw, sorry. But they're not, Wishaw. they're not the first places that people expect when you're going, I'm going on a whisky tour. They Absolutely. All, they kind of think of romantic space out of the Highlands, or maybe you could get to Isla or get to um, Arran and places like that. No one expects to be in Wishaw and Alloa.
0: But yeah, but in doing so, you kind of touch on the social history of this industry and how it's kind of affected. Uh, you know, it's got this sense of being really important to Scotland, but there's a kind of like oil and like coal and like all of these things, there's a real um, social history behind that as well.
1: I think there is. I mean, there is definitely, and it isn't just pretty nice picture postcard stuff. There is. There was always a lot of quite heavy industry involved with whisky. Although distilling, the actual act of distilling is not necessarily a heavy industry thing. Yes. But if you've got to dry peat, if you've got to dry barley on a big scale, that required a lot of coal fires. That was a really big, you know, thing to do. It wasn't as hot as 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 welding or steel work, but it was still a really hot,
0: heavy job. So why do you think that whisky has travelled the world as it has? I mean, you know, a lot of spirits do, obviously, vodka and gin and everything like that, but there is something about the status of whisky, um, I mean, it was huge in, in Japan, I don't know if it still is, but it, you know... Um, it still is. And and then, as you say, in America, malts, I and mean, you know, there seems to be something about it that almost places it above these other national spirits historically
1: national i'd parts. say that it was there was a quite a big combination of factors and one of the ones that you know you can't ignore at all was is, is colonialisation that you know that yeah. that if you have a big colony you have a big market and if you go even, you know, to somewhere that was, relatively speaking, nothing in the colonies in Inverta Coma, somewhere like Sri Lanka, which essentially was just the Port of Colombo as a way for people to stop off before they went to Australia, yeah. you go there, you get a load of expats, they're the ones in control, and the Scots are drinking whiskey, that becomes something that you want to emulate, so there is... There is the not very brilliant, the not brilliant side of our history, which Empire did a massive thing for us. But also, there were these guys in the 19th century, people like um, Alexander Walker's son, no, sorry, Alexander Walker, John Walker's son, and then James Buchanan, and they're called at the Whiskey bands and Tommy Dewar, these, you know, those whiskies that you just hear Dewars, you hear yeah. like famous Grouse Matthew Cloak, these people were travelling around the world at a time when there was these kind of big international ex- exhibitions had started, so there'd be one in Paris, there'd be one in Buenos Aires, and they would go to the mall and sell their whiskey as a luxurious product from this tartan-clad lock sided full of ghosts castle-ridden land. Yeah. And everybody would buy it. And they were selling it really, they were doing it really, really well mm-hmm. as luxury products. They were not bringing the price down. Um, someone told me when I was Doing this research, well, I say research a lot, of it was just kind of going around Scotland on buses, getting drunk. But remember, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I was doing research, and some of it was—I yeah, mean, you know—being in Kilmarnock on a Sunday isn't something I'd recommend. But I did I had a lot of fun and a lot of other things. But talking to some people, they were saying about how there are letters from agents in Australia to I think it's James Buchanan saying, you know, your stuff's too expensive. Um, can you bring the price down? He wrote back with no. People yeah. want it; they'll pay for it. Yeah. And it becomes it and it becomes that luxurious brand
0: that so it they keeps c- it as a luxurious brand. that's would
1: And the other thing I've noticed m- a lot about the industry, and I'm sure you know is how well they are at working together because I would compare it to the only one that I know which is like the Cava industry and the Cava industry massively buggered up Right um, Cordon you and know, Fretcheny who were the two big players in, in the Catalan Cava industry rather than facing to the public really well and selling the product as a luxury brand hated each other so much that they were undercutting each other in supermarkets in Britain and in Germany so Cava became this thing that everybody thinks of as lower quality
0: Yeah, yeah
1: Whereas prosecco and prosecco is really Cava's much nicer than prosecco. Um, prosecco didn't. They might all be stabbing each other in the back, but in but to but face to the public, yes. they and face to the foreigners and face to the market, they're all big smiles and pulling together. The whiskey industry is amazing at pulling together. It's amazing at keeping at keeping their brand up. They, they create lots of organisations that keep their brand up yeah. and keep their name going. And they're really, even now I when mean, you look at it, they're really big on hospitality and generosity so that their name is kept up there. I mean, the example would... The, I mean, the kind of best example for a punter in the Vertic Commons would be going to the Scotch Whisky Experience. Right. It's right beside Edinburgh Castle. So it's one of the top tourist spots in Scotland. Yeah. And you would expect right beside the top tourist spot in any country that whatever you were getting food and drink would be a total rip-off would be incredibly expensive the scotch whisky experience is owned by basically every single scotch producer they get involved in it the prices in the bar are probably only lower maybe in the pot still and even then they're possibly even lower than the pot still because they're not interested in you buying their whisky and making that five six pounds off yeah. you in the Scotch whisky experience, they want you to go home and buy the whisky. Yeah. None of the, because they're owned by every single person in the whisky industry. They have got no interest in pushing a brand on you. Their interest is getting you to find it what you like and sticking with it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I thought as I thought that was business genius because. It's, it's an area. It's right. It's a place that is total rip-off merchant tourist place. Absolutely,
0: yeah. And you could really take the
1: Mickey. Out of- I mean, you, I mean, I mean, you could be. I mean, they're charging three pound fifty for drams that in London are like nine pounds. Yeah. They could, they could, they could be charging twelve pounds for three pound fifty drams, yes. and they're not. And it made me. It, one of those things. I looked at it and I just thought this. Is how clever you people are. This is how much vision you have of their, you know, their enemy in inverted commas, their competition is still the competition, but actually the big competition is vodka, gin, bourbon. So they all have to club together to be better yeah. than vodka, gin, and bourbon.
0: Yeah. So we're going to work together because there's actually room for all of us rather than one wanting to be the kind of king of the
1: whole. I mean, I don't think it's as nice as I'm saying. Think, I do think you do know, think there are a lot of issues that people have. And I do think, you know, they have a lot of issues with, just for example, the amount of money that Diageo has and how much it dominates the market and how much it dominates the malts and how they moved, they centralised everything. They got rid of a lot of jobs in Kilmarnock. Yes. Nothing in Johnny Walker's used. Nothing about Johnny... There is nothing of Johnny Walker production or bottling or anything in Kilmarnock anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything is now in Main Street. You know, it's, to put it mildly, not perfect. Yes. But at the same time, if you had a wee distillery in a brand new distillery opening up, your market is open because Diageo spends an awful lot of money doing its Formula One, sponsoring its Formula One in India, you just need a website and Scot- and people that like Scotch Whiskey will find you we'll and find buy you your whiskey yeah,
0: that's because, point.
1: because Diageo has spent a fortune promoting Johnny Walker in Delhi that year Yeah, that's fascinating Which I found that was the thing I thought about it was how good an industry it was for doing that and how much and how much other industries could learn. I mean, like, you know, I've been back to Barcelona since I've done the book, and I've been, like, saying to people, I mean, really, at the Cava, people should just go and spend a month talking to everybody in the Scotch whisky industry and go back and go, we have to do it like this. We yeah. have to do it like this. I mean, they won't, because they're not like that. But, but, <laughs>
0: yeah, historically.
1: But it's just really interesting to see how, how much how, how, how much there's that whole thing. One of the other things, though, that historically happened with whisky was um, phyllox- phylloxera which destroyed all the vineyards in France in the late 19th century. And because of that, the brandy is obviously made from grapes. So, of And most of the stuff, most of cognac, their vineyards were destroyed. So people needed to drink something else. And the French started getting into whiskey. And French, per head, drink more milk whiskey even than us. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. They drink as much milk whiskey in a month as they do cognac in a year.
0: And that's just from that period. You think it's just it's just kept on. Just going
1: started and and again, you know, you know, one Scottish people are good at business. Yeah. You know, especially abroad. We might not be so good at it here and we might stay here, but people see opportunities abroad. Yeah. And you know, the French start buying. The first thing you're going to do is work it out how you're going to sell them more.
0: Yeah. And so that's how well we've kind of sold into the world. How do you think the attitudes to um, well, not just whiskey, but kind of drink in general in, in, in Scotland there I mean there's this uh, idea that's increasingly problematic um, our relationship with alcohol and um, you know if it was two weeks wages for a bottle of whiskey back in the day it's certainly not that now.
1: I mean if you look at whisk I mean the cheapest bottle of whiskey you could probably get would be in Aldi's not it would be like thirteen ninety nine. Probably yeah. What minimum wage is six eighty. So it's two hours wages.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, what
1: a change that is! It is a massive change. Um, I think we have a we seem to have a bigger problem with obesity than we actually do with drinking. Mm. And the thing about drinking is we are binge well, at least in Glasgow we're binge drinkers. We're not. And apparently someone was saying that there was a programme that they had like, of, of twins who right. were doctors and they were doing this whole thing of they had this amount of alcohol to drink a week and one of them drank every day and one of them drank all in one time and it didn't make any difference to their health in terms of whether you drink say, maybe you drink like 20 units a week or whether you drink 20 units Over on the, the Friday
0: uh-huh.
1: it actually doesn't make a difference it makes a difference to your head and like, sure. the fact that you'll end up probably being sick on Saturday morning but it doesn't make a difference to your actual long term health I think I think we but I think we've always had a long tradition of getting drunk. Yes. I mean, you read the old Marion McNeil books about sort of eighteenth century Highland hospitality and servants moaning that things aren't what they were because the gentlemen are not needing to be carried to bed. Yes. And I think also the thing and I felt even you know, some reading about kind of Scottish history with drink was that in the 18th century when it was rich people in Edinburgh getting drunk it wasn't a problem when it started being poor people in Glasgow getting drunk then that was a massive problem mm-hmm. and I do think, I think drink is a problem, I think emotional depression is one of a problem, I think yeah. if as a Brazilian friend of mine moved here in about 2000 and the thing that always amazed him, he said if you go to a club in Scotland everybody's getting drunk and then they all start pulling each other, whereas in Brazil we all try and pull each other then we drink
0: Yeah, yeah. But, it's, a, it's a good point point.
1: and I was like why would you try and pull somebody sober? Yeah. They make How do you
0: pull exa-
1: sober? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, What? Exactly. What, 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 what kind of nonsense is that? What kind of monsters are you when you start pulling people sober? And he just went, this is amazing. This is what you do. And he went, we, we just don't do that. We do it the other way around. And I, I do think, though, I think there's an increasingly younger generation who are looking to drink more quality stuff and drink less
0: Yes, I agree with that, yeah,
1: yeah. And I think that is a good thing. I do think there is a, I do think there is a thing of drink less and drink better. You know, they don't drink the twelve nineteen the twelve ninety nine bottle of whiskey. Go and spend forty quid on a bottle of whiskey and drink Enjoy it. And, and take take the length of time to drink it that you would take to drink four bottles of twelve ninety nine whiskey. Just have one. And I do I do think it is getting better, but I do still think it's a problem. But I also do think one of the biggest problems about d- the problem people have with drunkenness in West yeah. is poverty. It's not. Yeah. It's not drunkenness. Yeah. If you solve people's pro- po- poverty problems, you wouldn't have the same level of drunkenness. Yeah. And again, drunkenness is only a problem for people. Do it and rich people. The middle class people get drunk. No, it's not a problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that also is a similar to
0: that food. You know, whenever there's food scares, and the most recent one this week was about bread, I just had to be listening to this on the radio, and people start saying, um, well, you know, you should be making your own bread, and, you're, and you think, well, you know, come on, you, who's... You know, you're talking to people who, want don't have the knowledge, the, the money, all the, 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 the inclination to, to, to bake bread every morning, and it's often a cheap... It, the things that are attacked are the cheap foods. That you know, people maybe can't afford to have other things. It seems to me this is like this is another attack. When uh, if it was to be used in our Heston Blumenthal recipe, whatever is being under attack, then it's kind of celebrated as re you know readjusting it. But when suddenly health scares happen, it's usually not of the market.
1: To do, you know, there's other thing about ultra processed food was a word that somebody invented about three weeks ago and has now been in the gardens every day. And you know, and it's that it's another basically it's another stick to beat poor people with. It really is, and it's a whole personal responsibility thing. And I don't think you can. You, I don't think personal responsibility works when you're in a particular culture. I mean. If you lived in Spain, because they didn't have the Industrial Revolution, their poor were agricultural, so they have a thing of when you have more money, you have more food. Mm-hmm. So when you looked at when their economy was booming, everybody was buying expensive ham, expensive wine, expensive cheese. Um, they were going they were going to expensive restaurants. They were spending their money on food the way that we were buying stuff. We were going to Asda, we were buying bigger TVs, we were going on better holidays, we were getting more into debt, we were buying bigger cars, because we don't have... A culinary a culinary yeah. culture, we have a acquisition culture. Yeah. We need more things.
0: Yeah. You you'll almost say we'll go without so that we can have whatever the, the uh-huh. latest thing is.
1: And when you, and whereas with Spanish people, also because their houses are small I and mean, there's a lot more reasons than just they've got food culture, but yeah. there was a big thing of we get better food. So when their economy collapsed, the thing that really, really took a big hit was the ham industry, as in like the expensive ham yeah. industry, all these people were left with all these hams. And I mean a lot of them it's a big industry. We were like, what in the name of God do we do now? Which is why you can now, for, for years, you could get them for like 30, 40 quid in, in, in places like Aldi because yeah. Aldi would just buy them and, pe- and people were just trying to get rid of them because the Spanish didn't have the money to buy them anymore. And I don't think we had that. You know, we don't, I mean, and the French have that as well. You look, I mean, people who are not rich in France will have been to restaurants. So people of the same social and class background in Scotland would never dream of spending that in a restaurant. Yeah. And that is the thing that I found that I think we have a problem with food and what we're trying to do in terms of kind of trying to change the food culture. And I don't know what we do about it mm-hmm. because the thing I really realised was whiskey doesn't have a class. Yeah. There is an assumption that if you have more money, you will drink better whiskey no matter what class you come from in a way that you would only be from a certain class if you were going to start drinking more expensive red wine and getting really into red wine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in a, a wine tasting in London just before Christmas and there was a guy there and he was talking in a really loud voice as men like him want to do and obviously he went to Oxbridge and obviously it's very important in his own head and he was having this really loud conversation with another posh woman across the table about how him and his son were almost having competitive translations of John of the book of John from ancient Greek right. for fun Okay, and I... Near, I mean I could not stop laughing like, I was, I had to actually leave because I just was like you see you don't get that in a whiskey tasting and I look at you and you're wearing red trousers I mean <laughs> I mean, all I'd need to do is put this on video and it would be this is your wine wine can I'm allowed to swear yes, me, are, all you know, right, this yeah. is this is yeah. the, you know this is what wine has become in a way that whiskey, you just expect to be people who if they've got more money they'll buy more whisky
0: yeah.
1: in a way that you don't expect them to go to better restaurants or buy, or buy
0: better food yes um, I think that's very interesting. I think, you know, we, if you go to, uh, it's certainly any time I've been to Spain and you have these lovely markets which still thrive with fresh produce, cars we used to have them, you know, now empty or got restaurants in them, the cheese market, fruit market, and all of these places. Um, and somewhere along the line the importance of these things kind of disappeared as you said, were maybe replaced by other...
1: I do think it is less in Spain than it was. A lot more markets are becoming places to eat and I do right. and I do think there's a thing that is always very nice to say, Oh, they eat fresh, they eat that here yeah, but their women were are at home right. because of like the misogynistic dictatorship that they had and, they, and but yeah. you know as women weren't allowed to work. I mean mm-hmm. I mean when I lived in Spain in the nineties it was kinda like being in Barcelona, not so much. But if you were in smaller places like Santander or kind of even Girona or Tarragona, the women ran the house. And by the time they got to like forty nine, they were all on really heavy medication. Right. I mean, they were all on, on tranquilizers because they were like, "This has been my entire life." Yeah. And I don't. I think if nobody's in the house all day, I think a lot of the, there are a lot of these fantasies about this is all the fresh food that people make. And even you know the mark and markets are still a big thing in Barcelona. But that if you walk, if you go around the non-tourist ones, if you don't, if mean, the book area is just nothing like it was because right. it's just full of tourists. Yeah. If you go to a place, that's a residential place, and you look around, the opening hours have changed. What they sell has changed, okay. and there still are more and more places where people are going out and eating, because no one makes croquetas at home anymore because they are a total faff to make. Yeah. But croquetas were what you made when you'd had the meat on the Sunday or you'd the meat on the Saturday and you had it left over and you'd make a big mechamel sauce, you'd put in whatever leather, the chicken or the ham or whatever you'd had and then you'd let it settle and then the next day you'd... Put them into balls, put them in egg, and put them in breadcrumbs. I mean, who has the time to do that? Any, I mean, who, I mean, you know, yeah. no one does that anymore. I mean, even I don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I cook all the time. Um, I end up sometimes making the bechamel sauce, and I think, I'll oh, bugger this, and put it in the freezer, and they yeah. never, never use it. Yeah, sure. So I come to places like we are, like we're in a Spanish restaurant right now. Like I come to America and have and have croquetas in Spain. People go to places now to eat that kind of food. Yeah. So I don't. They are changing and not necessarily for the better, but I think we could learn from them how they manage that change. Yes. And I don't know what we do about food culture because this was the thing when I was in Spain, I realised I was talking to people, I think I was talking in a radio programme about the book, and I realised what I had done, and they completely understood my book. Like for them, it was just that would be the most obvious way to write about Scotland, would be writing about whiskey and writing them and, and putting recipes in and going around Scotland and learning these things. And I realised I'd written an old-fashioned Spanish food book about Scotland and whiskey. because old-fashioned Spanish food books were go here and this is what it's like and you eat this or you drink this and this is yeah. what you have and what fun it is. Yes. And this was the thing that I wanted to kind of get this idea of like conviviality is alive in Scotland it's just not around food. Yeah. And if you want to change the food culture hitting people over the face about what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. and I get people are, some people are really, really on the breadline, but not everybody is. Yes, yeah. But still, pitting people over the face at what they should be eating, what they shouldn't be eating, is isn't going to work. You somehow need to give people some kind of grounding and kind of confidence. Even, it, you know, almost in the way that they have a grounding and a confidence about whiskey, even if it is that thing of, I think I'm doing this wrong, they know there is a way to do it. Yes,
0: aye, uh, yeah.
1: So it's like I think I might be doing this food wrong because I know there's a way that could be doing. It. I think my diet might be wrong because I know there is a way yeah. that I could change this that does not involve feeling guilty, does not involve being wrong, mm-hmm. involves somehow wanting to change because it's yeah. a good idea.
0: Yeah, I see. You can see it's a beneficial and, and yeah, I'm learning something new. Um, but food in Scotland are. Yeah, well, certainly in the last decade has, there's definitely been a change, perhaps only in the major cities, but I mean I'm thinking of how Finiston and particularly Glasgow, has changed. Perhaps the most dramatic change of all, whereas you have all these um, new restaurants um, opening up and they seem to be um, doing something that Scotland didn't do previously. I mean it can be taken to extremes, I think there's an avocado restaurant in Finistin. Oh, that's sad. God I, I believe that it might be a joke. i, I maybe Oh, I uh,
1: hope it is. That. Oh, that is just sad. But
0: um, what, what do you think? Do you think that uh, all the time you've been kind of writing about food that you've seen? Uh, I think the Scottish food changed. Kind of restaurant side.
1: I think the restaurant side's changed, but I don't. It's not anywhere near the way that it is elsewhere. I think it's a lot better, but I still do think too much of our ideas about food our food culture is still kind of comedic defiance although I think there's a lessening of that I do think there was that whole you want us to eat deep five pizza we're going to eat it all the time uh, the yeah. munchie box the how bad can your food be
0: Sure.
1: I think that has changed and I do think the comedic defiance should almost be well we're supposed to be the sick man of Europe but guess what we're not
0: Yeah.
1: which I think would some somehow you need to kind of make people want to go hold on I'm going to be healthy I mean, I'm not supposed to be so fuck you I'm going to be healthy
0: yeah 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 sure which would instead of, fact of going, you want me to be unhealthy healthy, I'll show you I'll deep,
1: I will deep fry my pizza and <laughs> I will eat and I will eat a, a munchie box because you think I shouldn't be healthy so I'm going to be even more unhealthy yeah. Whereas, and somehow we need to kind of change that way of thinking to go, you know, I'm going to be healthy because yeah. that is really going to piss you all off Yeah. And, and I think Scottish people are very good at being contrary Yes. and somehow it could be almost, I, mean, I know, annoy the world by being really healthy You
0: could say that was sort of the success of the Glasgow, and it was the city of culture so, so long ago now. What does it say? Well, you say we're not culture, but we'll show you we do have culture. Which I and think actually, that's stuck, I think.
1: And I think we need to do and uh, somehow, we need to do that with food. Yeah. The thing I notice is that people are willing to try things, and I think people are willing to enjoy themselves, but I still do think we we don't, we still don't have that deep culture, I mean you go outside of say Glasgow and Edinburgh and like there's kind of one restaurant in Inverness somewhere like Sky has been really successful but that's very much on the tourist trail but I still, yeah. and I do think, I mean, and, and I, again I don't think I, the food people that do a job are celebrated enough, I think in a country that really appreciated it, that really appreciated it, its food, Shirley Spear would be worshipped as a god Yeah. because Shirley Spear was the person that really, spe- you know, kind of started off that change in Sky. She didn't do it all by herself, sure. but she was the one that got that going. She went somewhere and she did stuff that no one was doing, and then it became something possible, and now Sky is kind of a world-renowned restaurant yeah. destination. I yeah. mean,
0: who would have thought that? Well, that shows you what can be done, I think. Um,
1: but again, if you want me to be negative, it's yeah. like, well, why is, you know, why does Shirley not have flowers thrown in front of her yeah. every time she walks down the street? Why is she not revered?
0: I mean, perhaps it's a bit like the knowledge of whiskey. Most people in the country, they don't have the knowledge. Whereas when she, you know, she, well, certain skies are going now globally as a, a kind of destination for food. Maybe um, it, it just never crosses people to. I mean, you're right. The people in the know should be promoting folk and saying, look, this is worth shouting about. So let's shout about it. Sometimes we're not very good at that. No, I
1: think also. I mean, I think also we're not. You know, like our chefs don't have big names. And I also think because they're not seen as cultural figures, and and I do think it's 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 a very British Isles thing. I have a friend that's moved from France back to Ireland she was in France for about 25 years and we have very similar conversations about what we think some of the issues are and yeah. she says you know chefs in France are revered as cultural figures they're not celebrities they're yes. not TV people they yeah. might do a TV programme and she said almost they might deign to do a yeah. TV programme but they're not they're seen as massive cultural figures it's more like it's not like you have an entertainer who instead of presenting the one show is a chef doing
0: doing yeah, cooking it's not Harriet it's more kind con-
1: of or something like that no no I mean. See, I'm it's almost like it's more when you have somebody when you have an artist who will decide that they're going to do a TV programme. It's like they have they have decided yeah. to allow a TV programme to be done around them. Yeah, sure. Almost. I'm trying to think. So look, so something like Val McDermott, the last time she did Art Scotland, yes. this was like great because Val McDermott had a, almost allowed herself to be persuaded to do a TV programme. Yeah. Whereas we have, you know. James Martin and Ainsley Harney. and I don't think they do a bad job but they don't do a cultural job Yeah. it's very much a lifestyle job which then becomes very frivolous in a way if you look at our newspapers it's a lifestyle section and Scottish culture isn't very good at the kind of Namby Pamby lifestyle stuff yeah. at all so then it doesn't know what to do and the other thing I'd say that we need to work our way around that Scottish food culture is not just this is our larder yes we need to work our way out of that because that your larder's your larder, what you do with it is important. Yeah, sure. You sometimes get these pro- programmes or you read chefs and they go, Well, this is Scottish, this is Scottish, so therefore it'll be great because it's Scottish. Yeah. And oh, this is a lemon, it's not from Scotland, somehow you've failed. I don't really want to eat a lemon from Scotland. Yes, yes. We have been importing lemons for a very yeah, long right time, and I think having lemons from elsewhere is a very good thing. I mean, who would want to eat a lemon grown in Scotland? How you know? <laughs> how much environmental impact would it be to create conditions enough to have a lemon tree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. But there is there is an obsession, I think. Um, well, I mean, the mantra is you know, use good local produce, and that's great when there is good local produce. But sometimes it's okay to, you know, go get other stuff. Or, I
1: mean, you know, our cream is amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Our, our fish is amazing. Um, are, I, mean now because there's no Clyde side tomatoes or tomatoes aren't that great. I mean there's a few places, but it's not that easy to get them. Yeah. And I do. I just, I just think I don't, and I don't really know what we do until somehow we sit down and go, how do you make food as important as the arts? You know, there's yes, a there's I a thing. Uh,
0: absolutely. There's
1: a thing in if you talk to any writer or any artist in in Catalonia who of any renown, there is an assumption that they know about food and wine. Not. As much as an expert, but it's an assumption that they have a working knowledge of that because food and drink is part of culture. And if you're a writer or if you're an artist and you're interested in culture in general, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that was an assumption made of any artist in Scotland that they would know about food. They yeah. might happen to like about food, but they might you'd be more you'd assume much more they'd know about football.
0: Yeah, that's probably
1: true. Then they would know about food. Yeah. And if they knew about food and drink, it would be whiskey. You would you would never assume that they knew about wine
0: oh yeah or that they were a cook or whatever
1: but, yeah. there's just there are things that you would the, the kind of cultural accoutrements that you would assume of an artist in Scotland are very different from what you'd assume of an artist in Catalonia mm-hmm. and again I just I suppose I have this idea that you would there's almost you'd need if you want to make people want food you, if hitting them over the head and telling their lifestyle's wrong is very obviously not working yes Absolutely. You somehow need to get them to want to do that and I do think there must be a cultural thing and that you can you do. If
0: you see someone who you admire who is involved in uh, other things, I mean, sports a good example, something like that, then if you could if they were Visual, you know, known for loving their food or you know eating a certain way or whatever, then you can see that. Well, that's why you get people to you know, Lloyd Cole was advertising whiskey in Japan in the eighties mm. and nineties because they think, well, that's what we want to do. What they do, but they tend not to do that with food. I think.
1: No, they don't, and it's one of the things that. And I don't know how you change that. And I'm not sure how much it can be top down. I mean, I really don't have a clue because I have been back in Scotland got 18 months and standing looking. Because in London, where I live for about 10 years, there's not a food culture, there's a pop culture about food. Food is, in London is basically the new rock and roll. Right. Everybody that used to want, every kind of upper middle class person from the Trust Fund that used to want to be in the Beatles now wants to run a food truck or own a restaurant. Yeah. Um, being a chef is the coolest thing that you can do. Knowing about restaurants is the coolest thing that you can know in London, and you can see that a bit of that in Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yeah. But, I'd, but I mean, you know, food on restaurants and pop, the pop culture around restaurants will never replace music in Glasgow. Yes, sure. And also, a pop culture around going out to restaurants isn't a food culture; it's a pop culture, and then it'll change in twenty years to something else. Yeah. If you want to create a food culture, it needs to be what people are doing and eating at home. Yeah. Which is a different thing altogether. Yeah,
0: that whole thing, what we're doing today, we're we'll going out to a gig, we're we'll to a club, or we're we'll going out to a new pop-up restaurant which has opened up, or mm-hmm. something like
1: that. But what are you eating during the week? Yeah. And again, it's that, it, so, and I don't, I genuinely don't know what you do. Yeah. That And that was the thing I kind of realised in the book, that we don't have a food culture at all, we have a drink culture, and it's about conviviality, it's not about getting drunk. Because that was the thing, I think I put it in the book about reading Whiskey Galore and realising how, you know, what a good writer Compton McKenzie was. I mean, it was not in any way dated. I mean, and his his, his knowledge of language in terms of how people spoke, like, he had, you know, how posh people, the colonel, the posh guy, how the how the the Cockney guy spoke English how his mum spoke English how, how Gail spoke English was just amazing but also told me his brilliant thing was that that there was no whiskey on the island that you couldn't get a wee nip with your pint in the pub was really bad but that you had no whiskey at home to offer someone when they knocked on your door was a tragedy because yeah ginger beer and tea wasn't hospitality whisky was hospitality now the point was that you could say no if you came to my house and offered you a whisky you could say no, quite the thing but I had offered you the hospitality the point, if I didn't
0: have it to offer it was awful it was about identity rather
1: than it, a need to get drunk. Uh huh. I mean, and I think, and I, and I, think when I was I watched the film again. I don't, I don't think the film kind of got the film. Film didn't get that across the way the book did of the tragedy of not having hospitality. Yeah. And I was talking to the, there's Northern Irish food writer Diana Henry, and right. she was saying, oh, yes, I know. she was like, oh my God, I remember this. Race. She was like, my granddad on his farm, like somebody walked in, they'd be immediately be given a glass of whiskey. Do it. You it's know what you did. Yeah. And it's and it. As soon as you could afford a bottle, it's what what you did for people. And I have quite a few bits in that book about kind of like different anecdotes about people and their hospitality and whiskey, and like how you how you could tell that's what it was.
0: Well, there is always lots of personal um, anecdotes throughout it, I and mean, that's uh-huh. where you do the travel, or you often are with people, and you're going to meet people or uh-huh. things like that. Um, and that makes it a book that anyone could read, whether you know whiskey or, or you know, or whether you know you're interested in food or whatever. Everyone, as you say, will have a whiskey tail, and we'll have that uh, idea of sharing food or drink with someone. You know mm-hmm. that, and, and some of the best story, nights out I can think of have been nights out restaurants, or, you know, nights out the pub, or things like that. You know, um, so even if, even if we don't take the food side of it as seriously uh, as we should, have, it's not as a, I think everyone still has some stories to tell
1: but like that uh... I know think everybody has about conviviality kind of and sharing I mean you know I mean, my, my book I, I wanted to do I kind of wanted to do a book about travel but it was kind of that thing of just come here and sit down get yourself a glass of whiskey and read this book with a glass of whiskey yeah. I wanted people to read it and think and think they could do this you know like like almost, you know what, I'm going to go on a wee trip with my pal, not yeah. even, you know, if you live in Australia you're not going to come to Scotland necessarily and go to Isla. but you're going to oh, I'm going to go on a wee trip with my pal, I'm going to get in the car and we're going to go on a wee trip, because I kind of want to do that idea, because of, of that idea of conviviality, which which again, like people like Nestor Locan who's like an old Spanish, been dead since about the 1980s um he wrote about that, you know, he would go on these journeys and this idea was, he was having fun, you'd read this journey with Nessie, an and you'd think, God, I'd like to go, I'd like to go fishing there for someday. and so many travel books are now about places that are really hard and out of the way, look at my struggles while I climbed some massive mountain and nearly got shot by People and you're thinking oh, that's actually nice, but there's no way I'm doing that. Yeah, sure. And I kind of want I wanted to kind of write a travel book of, of like well, you could just do this. You just get on a bus and just go somewhere. I mean, you know, it might even be Kilmarnock, but yeah. you could just get on a bus and go somewhere and meet a pal or go with a pal, and it could be fun. You could do this. There's no reason yeah. why you. couldn't. And
0: it could be a memorable thing that if you ever come to write your own memoirs or books, that these are the days that you'll remember and put in
1: it. And these are the wee stories that you'll tell people, mm-hmm. and and there was you know one of the best things I ever read about, about food was Nestor Locan talking about a restaurant in Peniscola in, in Valencia and one of the things he always he was talking about, you're going to you're gonna eat this food and you're sitting there and the sun's going down by the sea because the restaurant was right on the rocks and you're drinking a glass of wine and you wish that your life, you will wish that your life lasted as long as possible so you could come back and do this again and again and again yeah, yeah. and I just think there's, there is that thing of food and drink where if you're not just standing in the pub drinking really quickly mm-hmm. to k- get really drunk there is that thing of you do there are people that you're sitting with thinking this is the kind of life this is a life this yeah, is a life exactly. that I want i mean everybody has a food and drink moment in their life where they're sitting somewhere it might it could be fish and chips on a bench Looking at a promenade and yeah. you've just bought um, some wine from or a can of beer from the supermarket, and you're even drinking out the bottle or out the can and you're sitting there going, This is a life, this yeah. is what I want for yeah. my life. And I kinda wanted the book to be a wee bit that kind of idea of, of you're reading this going, actually, I'm gonna go and do that because this is this is I could that life is easy. I could have days like yeah, that. Everybody exactly. can have days like that. Not
0: huge. It's huge. it's experience which everyone can
1: have. And it's not I mean, none of these people, none of the people in my book are big, important, fancy people. They're just my pals yeah. or my family. None of it's massive, you know. So, again, it was that. There didn't, I just wanted it to be an ordinary thing and, you know, I just went buses and trains. Didn't well, hire a car.
0: You certainly could have changed my life by saying whiskey not poured with cheese and I've stuck to that since. And that's It's a, good, isn't what, it? Brilliant, absolutely. It's so much better. with a blue cheese, that's fantastic
1: a peated whisk and blue cheese i think, is the thing and if you wanted like a cherry cask whisk and, um, and like a cheddar on a manchego I think it is much better but again it's that thing of that's fun there's not that idea of doing it wrong it's like I'm going to try it and see if I don't like it well I don't like it but I'm going to try it and I just think I mean there are reasons, historical reasons why we drink port and it's mostly how to piss off the fridge because the Napoleonic Wars, so I think the whisky's much nicer with with cheese. Yeah, and
0: it's got a bit of backstory then if that's it, if it's just to
1: piss off the fridge. I mean it is, I mean in the end when you look at the Napoleonic Wars was what happened the claret industry fell apart, they couldn't get cognac so they decided to try and get all the English and Scottish by then to drink port. Um, now you...
0: Before we finish, you're also a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, often, you know, t- talking about food on the radio. One that says that there is um, certainly an audience for people to learn more about food. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, what what kind of you know state of the nation do you get from talking to people or you know discussing food on the radio?
1: Most of the stuff. I think it depends on where you go and in a good way I think people are really people are really interested in food and interested in doing things I think there's an ad- the, the advantage of not having a food culture is an adventurousness of what people who like food are willing to make and willing to do Yeah. which I think is good if and there's always been that I think there's been that for a very long time and adventurous and I think that other countries don't have where this is what they eat and they won't eat anything else yeah and
0: this is how we
1: do it I I think it really depends where you go what larders are like and what industries are like I think I have to say not not in a brilliant way but if you go anywhere around Britain everybody seems to have a really dull grey beef or lamb stew everywhere it doesn't matter where you go they're like oh we've got this local thing and you're like and I bet you it's a brown stew with
0: a carrot and a
1: (laughs) <laughs> onion But you know, I do think that you see, there's an awful lot going on. I do think there's a new thing of a lot of really good food producers, and again, they're not cheap. Yes, but you get a good food producer that isn't cheap, and they're yeah. not made. And this is again, you, you kind of have to get people around the idea that you can buy cheese for £1.50 for 400 grams, and you can buy it for £10.50 for 400 grams, and it and there's a big difference, but one of the big differences is that, see that cheese that you're making, that is one guy yeah. or one woman, a couple at the most, yes. doing something and really trying to bring something to an area and revive a cheese or make a new cheese and it might be worth a wee bit extra of your money, not just because of the taste, but also because they are really trying to bring something back to an area. Uh, what we have really, really done really well in Scotland is a lot of small smokehouses. Right. There's a really good one in Kirkintilloch, and I now can't remember. Is it Campsie? I can't, Campsie Cures, maybe? I can't remember their name. But they do, and I mean, that's just, I think it's just like one woman does it and her daughter helps her and so it's, again it's not a big outfit and you buy it and it's more expensive than buying it in Marks and Spencers sure. when you find her stuff but it's really really good and it's one person doing something that's worthwhile yeah. so I do think there is a lot more there is a lot more there's a kind of an increase in interest in things yes. and there is a lot more small producers and things like the Stranraer Oyster Festival which they did for the first time last year and you can see there's a there's, a, there's a, a desire to kind of create local things and again there's a desire to create a tradition because yeah. the Stranraer Oyster Festival works in ten years' time, nobody will ever re- have remembered that there wasn't one every yeah, year. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. but you know, by the time you've been for ten years, everybody will be like, "This must have been going since the 1920s." You're like, no, it started in 2017, but no one cares. Sure. And uh, so, I do think that is. I do think that is getting better.
0: And maybe that is the way forward. You know, small book festivals, small film festivals, small arts festivals are kind of thriving, and, and you know, on it's actually growing in the last few years. And maybe the next step would be. More small food festivals celebrating.
1: But I think there needs to be more small food festivals that aren't just chefs doing demos about yeah. fancy food, and also because then what you end up doing is it's not housekeeping food, everything is just pan fried in the way that a chef does because yeah. restaurant cooking is very different from home cooking. Much so, yeah. I do think there needs to be more stuff about kind of people cooking together things like cook, come, and, come and cook a big thing with me as opposed yeah. to. As opposed to Just watching. standing watching you pan, like you get a pan and fry quickly with duck breasts. Well, I think that's rests. the problem, because I think
0: food has become a spectator sport in this country a little bit. You know, um, i watch See, we things used to go say, on in the morning, and I'll look out of, you know, whatever they have done.
1: While yeah. I'm sitting here eating my out, and if yeah. I'm poor, it's in Iceland, and if I'm rich, it's in Waitrose, and I'm sitting here meeting my microwave meal while watching Rick Stein make some fantastic stuff on the telly. Yeah. We used to have a theory that if you want to know what a country doesn't do, you watch its telly. Ah. So we reckoned that the British never cook. Yes. The Germans don't really actually do that much sport and the Spanish never have sex. <laughs> And then it turned out we were right because they did all these surveys and a survey every single year would turn out that the Spanish had the least sex out of in Europe. <laughs> and I used to have this friend of mine who was utterly personally insulted every single year. And I'd like, well, you have to go home and like do it well, more with your wife and then you can like push up the average. <laughs> 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 um,
0: well, Rachel, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you very fantastic. much for having me. And we'll be back soon uh, with someone completely different. shares. <laughs>